I do a little bit of coaching on the side, um, basketball and football. One of the things that you'll find with athletes is they're so in the moment that you have to pull them out and show them video of themselves to get them to believe that they're doing something wrong. And so um, that moment where you, you've spent all your energy trying to tell them something, but they don't believe you and they can't get it until they see themselves. And when they see themselves, it is dramatic for them to come to terms with that and then be able to say, oh, okay, so now um, I'm going to do something different. And I find that to be true categorically of men is that once they get a clear picture of themselves, when they hear something, see something, that highlights what's wrong or what's broken, they are not far from wanting to take action and from taking action. And I think it's an incredible aspect of of how God has created men. So, and that's what we've been seeing through the last few sessions, is that some of us are coming to terms with, um, oh, this is what I look like, this is what it feels like, this is something that I didn't know. We're giving some language to some things. And when we have language, then we can talk about it. When we can talk about it, we can think about it. When we learn to think about it, learn from others, then our, our beliefs can change and our actions can change. We can take some direction. Had a very wise man tell me at lunch one day, he said, you have to understand, Matt, so much of life is about fellowship. Not the shallow version, but about being in fellowship. And he talked about that in the context of church and men and how we work together. But then I was thinking about it in the context of my marriage, is that when Vicky and I are in fellowship, we can make the most dramatic decisions. We can move across the country and go there for seminary. We can move over here and we can start a church. We can decide how many kids we're going to have and what we're going to do about this and we're going to do about that and buy a house, sell a house. We can make all these dramatic decisions when we're in fellowship. But when we're not in fellowship, We can't figure out where to eat lunch. You would think that we were the UN rallying around, what are we going to do about this rogue country with nuclear weapons? We can't figure out what to do. And so fellowship's important. And so here were the big ideas that we looked at. The first one was oneness. We talked about passivity. We're looking at ourselves, seeing our common story. Then we talked about oneness, this connection, the spiritual truth that we live into reality. We talked about uniqueness. And then uh, for our purposes in this session, we're going to talk about the idea of redemption. So oneness, uniqueness, redemption. Those definitions, oneness, a spiritual truth that we live into reality. Uniqueness, it deals with um, being equal in value, ordained with distinction. Is that in one of the primary distinctions that we have is the fact that we have different roles. And one of the unique roles of masculinity is the call to love and to lead. So we are unique in so many ways. And then redemption. And very simply, without going uh, with this huge theological definition, something very simple, very usable. Here's what we mean by redemption. Restoring what is broken. We looked at the fall, Genesis 3. We've seen that the world that we live in is broken. We've seen that we as men are broken. We've seen that women are broken, so we know that our homes are broken. And there's ultimately this restoration when Jesus comes back of everything, but there's the process of redemption going on right now. Here's what the word redemption means literally. It means paying for release. So it's restoring what is broken, and redemption means paying for that which will be released um, Jesus will go to the cross and pay a price to release us from sin, from the penalty of sin and ultimately from the power of sin and then from the penalty of sin. So when I go to a pawn shop and I'm looking for a good deal on something, it's held captive till I give some money and then I will, I will pay for its release. 
All right, so it's been redeemed. It's been pulled out. Here's, here's an image I'd love you to have, all right? I'll show you this slide. I think we have one for this session. It's a river in Tennessee full of trash, full of trash. It gets here one of two ways, right? Is it someone backs up a truck and just dumps a truckload of trash into this river and ruins it? All right, or um, it happens a piece at a time. This person throws this, this person throws this, and it all washes down. And here's what I would say. This is, the, this is what a lot of us, all of us, are experiencing on some level in our marriage. Some folks will come in, and they will have had, one of the persons in this marriage will have had an affair. So what that does is it feels like that dumps a, a truckload of trash into their marriage. That's all, where do you start? you got to go to work on it. But for others... There is um, this um, just piecemeal every day. This and this and this. Hurt my feelings here. Disregarded there. Dismissed over here. And so there's this slow buildup of clutter in this relationship. And so a couple years ago, I'm on a retreat with our elders. And um, we've been together for a couple days. And uh, everybody was leaving. And so there was another couple in us that were kind of hanging back. And I, I noticed that the night before was real late. We stayed up real late talking. And there was a misunderstanding between the two of them. And so there was um, a little bit of conflict. And so the next morning, we were going to hang out. And he said, look, before we hang out, he goes, he, she and I, we got to get something worked out. So we're just going to go for a walk on the beach. We were um, down in Pauly's Island. He goes, we're going for a walk on the beach. And y'all, this worked out. They were gone for about an hour. And so I sat on the porch, and I watched them walk back and forth down the beach. Just, and you could tell they were talking, working through something. And the whole time they're, and this is a couple that I admire as much as anybody I know, one of my best friends in the world, and they have one of the best marriages of any couple that I know. And as I'm watching them walk down the beach, I'm looking at them thinking, that looks familiar. I'm thinking, who is that? And then it dawns, I was like, well, that, that's us. And I thought that was just us. It dawns on me as I'm watching them work through some just average, ordinary, nothing catastrophic, just normal conflict, that that's what we do. And I just kind of thought that was just us, that there's this daily process where things happen. And it doesn't have to be every hour, every day, but there's just this consistent process where things happen in life. Some of it's my fault, some of it's her fault, some of it's just the world we live in that, that has to be dealt with, that puts issues and trash between us and conflict between us. Some of it I put there, some of it she puts there. And so we're not even talking about the huge affair or the immorality or something really terrible that happens, a big lie. We're just talking about the normal stuff of life can wear out and destroy a relationship unless this, unless there's a, just like there's a constant flow of junk into a relationship, there has to be a constant flow of redemption into that relationship. And that, that's really the point, is that there's a constant flow of stuff that's cluttering and ruining a relationship. So there has to be a constant flow of redemption and redeeming grace that flows into that relationship. So that's why we said oneness, uniqueness, redemption. All right, look at Romans 8. Let's work through it. Romans 8, verse 20. He talks about creation. And he is hearkening back to Genesis 3, what we've read in earlier sessions of the fall, where Adam and Eve sin against God and, and send creation into um, a down spiral. Verse 20 says, against its will, all creation was subjective to God's curse. We read that earlier. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in the glorious freedom from decay, from death and decay. So there's a point in the future when it will be freed from this. It will be redeemed from this decay. 
For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up until the present time. And we as believers also groan. Things are not as good as they should be. We are in a place of groaning. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, a foretaste of future glory, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. This is the the world that we are in. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised us. So things are not as they were before the fall, and they are not as they will be after this future final redemption. And so this is why we live in a world, and I have a bunch of trees at our house, and limbs are always dying and decaying and falling. And so my kids are always having to clean them up. Clothes are wearing out. Engines are wearing out. Do you ever wonder, why is it that they don't build an oil that the longer you use it, the better it gets? The the, holds viscosity gets even better. Engine, the longer that engine runs, it gets healthier. Gaskets don't wear out. You ever wonder why everything in our world moves towards a place of deterioration and decay? I mean, it could, couldn't it just as easily be the other direction? That the more you use something, the stronger it gets, the better it gets. But in our world, everything moves towards decay. It's the world we live in. That's why we wear glasses. That's why our backs hurt all the time. This is the results of the fall. So here we are. We're two sinners living in a fallen world, both sinful, both broken. And now we've brought together a marriage that is broken. I had been married a month, 21 years old, full of wisdom and grace. Uh, We were unpacking stuff and moved in our new apartment. And I had all these expectations. She had other expectations. We were in some disagreement. I'm in the, I mean, it's all one room, really, one bedroom apartment. But I'm in the kitchen area. I'm in the dining room area. She's in the kitchen area, which are just like five feet apart. So we're in this conflict. And I can't get her on my team. I can't get her over here to where I'm to see it the right way, my way, right? I can't get that. And so she says something that just really frustrated me. And so I had opened a box, a wedding gift, and there were these four little glasses, um, plastic, double paneled plastic things with a little fly fishing thing inside, a little decorative cup. And I just thought, God, night. She was over here. And I took the cup. And I dropped it on the floor. I dropped it like this and timed it so that I could kick drop it. So drop kick it. So I dropped it and I went, I caught it. Boom. Threw it into the wall. Shattered. My wife's standing over here. She looks at me. She looks at the cup. She looks at me. And I can see it on her face. What have I done? I have married an insane person. I mean, what does this mean for the rest of my life? I can see all these things are flowing through her head of what kind of nut have I married? How, how angry is this man? He just kicks cups into walls and they explode. I mean, how, how angry is this person? Is he going to stab me in the middle? What does this mean? And I look at her and I look at the cup and I look at her and I look at the cup and I think, I really should have tried out to be a kicker at Clemson. I could have, I could have done that. That was good. <laughs> right? I mean, those are the different worlds we're living in. I mean, there's things that are broken about me that I see and that I understand and that I can tell you about. I can explain it to you, why I'm that way and why I feel that way. Here's the other thing. There's other things about me that are broken that I I don't understand. I mean, I know it's there, but I, I, I can't really explain to you why that is. And I can't get my arms around about how deep that is. And, and that's just that's the reality. 
So you have two people like that in a relationship, and there's no shortage of brokenness. There's no shortage of opportunities to bring brokenness into our home, sin into our home, pain into our home. And if there's not a constant flow of redeeming grace, redemption that comes into our home, then it's, it's going to pile up and we're going to have this huge buildup and we're going to be 10, 20 years into a marriage and God's going to be irrelevant and we're going to be irrelevant to each other and we're going to think, we just don't love each other anymore. Let's move on. This isn't working. The kids are gone now. They're in college and so we don't have anything between us anymore. So they'll be fine since they're grown. So let's just go our separate ways. I mean, that's where it's headed for most of us. Is the constant buildup and disconnection, so there's nothing between us. So the only logical conclusion is to come apart at some point. It's what will make sense. He says, we groan and we wait for that day of redemption. But here's the thing. That re- part of that redemption is also happening right now. Part of the gospel is about bringing that kind of redemption into our homes right now. So I have a friend who hunts deer with a bow and arrow. And when he shoots an animal... And that, 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 that arrow will almost always go all the way through that deer. So that deer runs with an open wound. All we're, it's just a matter of time. I mean, this, this hunt is over. This hunt is over. It's just a matter of where that animal decides to lay down before he dies. And I look at men, not in the world. We're not talking about Hollywood. We're not talking about this city, that country. We're talking about men in general. I've been to Africa and shared some of the same information in Kenya. And I get the same looks on men's faces there. It's the same reality. We have men who are running with open wounds. And marriage, marriages with open wounds. And it is just a matter of time before those men, those marriages, those women, those families. It's just a matter of time before they die. Unless some healing takes place. All right, First Timothy. Let's talk about what our part in this is. Because some of you are going to jump and think, well, I mean, what's her part? We're not talking about her part now. We're talking about your part. We're talking about my part. First Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. So you underline worst. I'm the worst one. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience. For even, here it is, the worst of sinners... Then others will realize that they too could believe in him and receive eternal life. A couple things flow out of this. Paul's view of himself, he's not suffering from low self-esteem. He's just suffering for being low. He has an accurate view of himself. It's not that he thinks he's not as good as you are. It's that he knows he's not as good as God. So his, his view of himself is not perverted, it's actually accurate. It's that God is perfectly holy and he is not. And so relative to God, it doesn't really matter who you are. He is the worst of all sinners because he's thinking in terms of his relationship with God. And here's the problem with, with us in a marriage. As long as you're married, you always have the, the ability to blame someone else. And so since, since she's not perfect... I have the ability to offload the responsibility of bringing about redemption in our home. I can just forget about that because it's not always my, it's not my fault. I have someone else to blame. I can put some of that on her. So I don't really have to take responsibility. And I don't have to take up this mantle and say that I'm the worst sinner. But the reality is, in our marriage, when she and I are in conflict, I'm the worst sinner in the room. I have to be the chief sinner in the room. Not because I'm better or worse than she is, but because of, 
of my relationship with God, there's no way that she has offended me more than I've offended God. So it's really about my relationship with God. Is that I'm not trying to be better than her. I'm just not as holy as God. And there's, she can't um, hurt me or offend me near as much as I've offended God. So I'm the worst sinner in the room. Paul is a prime example of what God can do. Right? So many of us are stuck in a place of guilt, mired down, covering up. Because we don't understand the gospel and how it frees us. Of how if this man who murdered Christians can call himself the chief of all sinners, but yet God's grace has been sufficient. We're kind of caught in the past carrying weight, carrying guilt, where um, we've made mistakes and not ready to move on. And, And the thing is, many of us are hiding. We're hiding because we have not received redemption for ourselves. We have not received the gospel for ourselves. And so we're struggling. We're not really comfortable with who we are. There's a part of me that feels like I've got to cover up how sinful I am and I've got to hide that from her because my credibility is connected to how good I am. My credibility is not connected to how good I am. Paul didn't say that. Paul didn't say, I'm so good, that's why I'm credible. Paul says just the opposite. I'm so bad, that's why I'm credible. The grace of Jesus has covered my sin and put me in a position to be able to do ministry and then if if my life can change, your life can change because my life becomes an example. And so my sin and how I handle it is critical. So when there's conflict between a man and his wife, he should never be afraid to say, okay, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. You can't even believe how wrong. I mean, as wrong as you think I am, I'm actually more wrong than that. And, and, and you, you can't even believe how wrong I am. Okay, now let's deal with the issue. And you go, well, man, I mean, that... There's a part of us that doesn't want to be vulnerable like that. That doesn't, want to, um, that doesn't want to put that out there. But that's part of my responsibility. Is that I'm free to put that out there. See, when I identify myself with Christ, I'm telling you every horrible thing about me. Even if you're not getting all the detail. If I come to a communion table. Or if I say that I worship Jesus or I believe in Him. I'm telling you right off the bat that I have huge, huge sin problems. That only Jesus can satisfy. I'm not perfect. And here's the counterintuitive idea on this. Is that a woman does not want to be married to a perfect man. She does not want that man who thinks he has it all together. Who acts like he has it all together. Who acts like he never does anything wrong. That is not the kind of credibility that you need to lead. In fact, just the opposite. Your ability to say, I'm a worse sinner than you are. I got more problems here than you do. Yet... We're still going to move towards each other. We're still going to move forward. And his grace is sufficient. That is what is powerful. And when a woman sees that, that I can acknowledge my sin, that I can take responsibility for my sin, it is inspiring to her. When she sees your life changing, when your children see your life changing, it's inspiring to them. And there's a part of them that's humbled by that, and they want a piece of that. And so taking responsibility in this area where I can look at my wife when she has hurt me, when you can look at your wife when she has cut you, and you can say, "Mm, that really, really hurts, or that's really, really frustrating. But as frustrating as that is to me, you have not been more frustrating to me than I have been to God. You have not hurt me more than I have hurt God. So I get to humble myself 
and say, as much as that's difficult for me to hear or watch or see or be a part of, um, I have inflicted greater wounds on Jesus. So now I'm positioned to be able to work with you. I'm positioned to humble myself and, and, and work with you. We can talk about this. Galatians 2.20. Look at another one. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's interesting here. It's a totally different way of thinking. When he says, I'm the chief of all sinners, I'm the worst sinner in the room. As much as you sin against me, I've sinned against God more so I can humble myself. Here, he puts it in different language. He says, I'm actually dead to who I was. A lot of my ambitions and my dreams and my desires and my expectations, those things can die. And when those things die, now I'm free to love you just as you are. So it's no longer I who live, but the life that I live now, I live by trusting in God, not in myself. I mean, there's a freedom in coming to the end of yourself and not having all these expectations. I was a, um, played football in high school, and we were short on athletes, literally short on athletes. It's not false humility. And so I got thrust into a role that I was not near qualified for as a sophomore. I was thrust into playing quarterback for our high school. It was a large high school um, in the lower part of the state. And um, I, my arm hurt all the time. We were running a run-and-shoot offense, and what, which would be like a spread today. and So I was throwing hundreds and hundreds of passes every day, and my arm was killing me. So I went to the doctor, and um, some sports doctor specialist guy, and he said, do this for me. He grabbed my arm. He said, hold your arm up. He goes, let me pull on it. He pulled it down, my good arm, he, and then my hurt arm. He pulled on it, and he goes, all right. Here's, and that was how long the test took. It took like two minutes. We're done. He goes, well, um, here's the good news. The good news is there's nothing wrong with your arm. It's like, all right. He goes, here's the bad news. The bad news. You're not much of an athlete. <laughs> he goes, it's just, it's just not who you are, bro. He said, I mean, you're just not really wired. He goes, you're trying to perform way out of what you're really gifted to do. And so at first you're like, oh, crushing my dreams. I thought I was going to go play for, you know, Notre Dame or something. And so, you know, all the big dreams of that, and it just kind of comes crumbling down. So I go back and tell my coach, and he goes, what did he say? I was like, he said that I wasn't much of an athlete. <laughs> He goes, all right, well, get back out of there and keep throwing. Right. <laughs> You're what we got, you know. But you know, it's funny, though. Once that settles in, I'm like, oh, I don't have to try to be something I can't really be. And there's a certain amount of freedom in coming to terms with who you really are and that being whatever it is. And so what we've done is we've set up some expectations that are rooted in our pride and says, I, I must be the sinner. I must be the king. I've got to do this, I've got to have this, and she's got to perform like this, and her expectation, I've got expectations going to be like this, and we've got all these things that got to measure up to my greatness. And Paul says, look, when you come to Jesus, he said, you, you've, you've been, your old self is dead. And a lot of the expectations that you had, they were wrong anyway. A lot of the drives that you had, those things need to die. You need to be freed from a lot of those expectations. You need to be able to humble yourself. Release those expectations, release those rights, those desires. And here's what it frees you to do. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Here's what it frees you to do. It frees you to do a few things. To love her without any strings. Because most of us love our wives because they perform well. Well, what if she doesn't perform well? Well, then our relationship doesn't work. Because our relationship works when she does what I want, when she performs the way I want. Which is not you being dead to yourself and loving her unconditionally. 
So to be able to love her without strings. So she embarrasses you. Well, because you're dead, you're free to love her even though she embarrassed you. Doesn't mean you don't have to talk about it. Doesn't mean there's not going to be conflict. Doesn't mean she doesn't need to say she's sorry and y'all got to work through it. But you're free to love her anyway. Okay? When um, she won't say she's sorry, you go, well, she won't say she's sorry? So I'm done with that. And we're going to live in different worlds until she says she's sorry. He goes, no, I'm free to love her, even when she doesn't do what I think she should do. When she doesn't measure up to what I think she should do or what I want. When she doesn't meet my expectations. I'm free to love her without strings. Why? Because I don't live anymore. Dead. A lot of the desires and expectations I had, those are dead now. New life. And once again, as sinful as she can be towards me, she's not what? She's not as big a sinner as I am. I'm the worst sinner in the room. Not because she's necessarily better than I am, but because she can't offend me and hurt me and embarrass me and cut me loose. She can't do that any more than I've already done that to God, and he continues to accept me, forgive me, love me. I'm compelled to move towards her. Ephesians 4, verse 30. He says, And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. There is this past peace to redemption. We are justified when we trusted in Christ. Our sins are paid for. There's this present, ongoing, sanctifying process that's going on right now. And then there's this future day of redemption, all of which are aspects of our salvation. Verse 31. He says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So you're just going to get rid of all this and embrace all this. Stop being bitter, anger, start having these harsh words, stop slandering one another, stop doing all this, and then be kind to one another. Here's, here's the question, how? How would I do that? How would I get rid of anger when anger is what I feel? He would say, we have a huge motivation problem. He says, you can get rid of anger towards her you can you are motivated to be merciful and kind towards her because God's been that merciful and kind towards you in fact he's been far more merciful and kind well you don't know how many times she's done that not as many times as you have you have offended God far more than she will ever offend you so Matthew 18 tells a story tells a story of a guy who who owes the king what would be billions and billions of dollars today it's an unrealistic amount and so he comes in, the king says, King, just give me some more time, I can pay it off. King says, all right, no, I just forgive you. Forgive you for your debt. And then the guy goes out into the street and finds the guy who owes him the equivalent of about 15 grand. And he starts beating on him, throws him into jail. He goes, you ain't pay me that money, you can give me my money, I need my 15 grand. And the king finds out about it, he goes, now let me get this straight. Pulls him in front and he goes, here's the thing, I forgave you billions, but you wouldn't forgive him 15,000. He goes, that's right. He goes, you're done. He goes, that's ridiculous. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying about us. He goes, you're, you're looking with a straight face and saying, I can't forgive her anymore for what she's done. And Jesus is saying, are you kidding me? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. I just don't feel motivated to be gracious towards her. God is saying, really? You don't? Well, how motivated do I feel to forgive you? I mean, look what I have done for you. Look at the depth of your sin. Look at the breadth of your sin. Look at what you've done. And if you say, I mean, I don't think I'm that bad, then you are completely disconnected from reality. You are completely disconnected. If you think you are that much better than your wife, or you think 
that God is not that holy and you have not been that offensive to him. You're completely disconnected from a biblical framework and a real world view of what's going on. And so well, how does it, what, does it, what does it mean in real life? Well, here, here's where I've seen it work its way out. Uh, we had a guy that, that I knew in the community on the fringe of our church years ago. And in his, I knew things weren't good with this couple. I'd met him a few times. It wasn't great. Um, but I didn't know what it was. And um, he systematically pulled their marriage apart until they wound up with divorce and went their separate ways. But as that process was going on, I got to learn some of the details. And what had happened was, early in their marriage, she had gotten frustrated and she had emasculated him emotionally, verbally. She had cut him and cut him and cut him, and he didn't meet her expectations. And so she just found herself um, on a tirade all the time, wounding him, wounding him, wounding him. And boy, he internalized that. And he didn't lash out in the beginning. He just put it inside, and it began to smolder, and it became a deep root of bitterness in him that he wouldn't talk about, he wouldn't deal with. And then as time moved on, and he began to shape the situation, and he methodically, over a period of about five years, figured out a way to destroy their marriage, make her look terrible in the process, but, but get away from her. All, and here's the thing, is that by the time their marriage was coming apart, she was fully repentant for what she had done. She, had, she acknowledged it. She could see it. But here's, so here's what would have happened. If he could have dealt with more integrity on the front end and seen that sin happens and people make mistakes and people are sinful and, he, and he's not any better than she is, she's, this is a huge sin that she committed, and now he's played a role in it too, but there could have been redemption early on. It would have saved that relationship. And, and you go, well, he's probably on to bigger and better things. Here's the reality. He's actually not. Because the same bitterness that he methodically used to rip apart their marriage, he's brought that where? Right into another marriage. You don't cultivate that for years and then move on to another relationship and don't bring it with you. And so this marriage that he's in now is not any better than the one he had before. And so what he had before could have been a great marriage if he had had some integrity, some sincerity, not been passive, moved towards his wife. They could have talked. She could have repented. And it's been a huge process for her. And it could have really, really... And I'm not, I'm not being romantic. I mean, I understand how tough the world is. I'm just saying this is one of those that could have really worked. Had there been a steady flow of redemption, which he did not want. Because you're going to have to humble yourself. And Luke 7 says this. Jesus will say this. He'll say, look... The one who has been forgiven much, loves much. He loves God much. He loves other people much. Because he's been forgiven much. If I don't love much, it's because I don't think I've been forgiven very much. Which is just not true. The gospel says I have been forgiven in huge ways. My pride says I don't have to forgive and I don't have to release. The gospel says that I am dead, I am forgiven, and I am an agent of redemption. And as a man in your home, it is not about you getting justice. It is about you bringing redemption into your home. All right, so let me give you some ideas here, some redemptive ideas. First one is this. Redemption means this. It means you're free to lead and free to fail. The fact that redemption is a constant flow in our home. You are free to lead and you are free to fail. Failure is a critical part of leadership. In fact, your wife needs to see you fail. She needs to see how you handle that failure. She, see, she needs to see the humility that comes from failure. 
And the freedom that you have gives you the ability to lead on new things where you don't know how it's going to go. You don't know how it's going to end. You don't know how, how it's all going to work out. And this leadership, the freedom in leadership means that you don't have to please your wife in every issue. There are things that she's going to want, just like things that you want, that aren't healthy. And so you're free to lead in a way that may not necessarily please her all the time, but might be the best for your family. All right? Second one. Redemption means that you must be experiencing redemption. You must be experiencing change. Your change is catalytic for the change in your wife and in your children and people around you. Life change breeds more life change. When people see your life change, God's able to use that to impact them. So the question is, can she see you changing? Or is your home stagnant because you are stuck where you are? You're, you're, you're not changing, you're not growing, and you're like, man, I sure wish my wife would move here. I wish the kids would do this. I wish all this. But that change needs to start with you. She needs to see a, a, a humility in you, a new attitude in you, growth in you. That becomes inspiring and a, and a connection point for her. Thirdly. You must walk in forgiveness and redemption personally. By this I mean, you cannot carry shame and guilt from the past. 2 Corinthians 5 says you're a new creation. If redemption is going to be something, you're an agent of redemption in your home, then you've got to live it, you've got to believe it for yourself. Some of our men are frozen still because they carry all this weight from the past, so they don't want to say anything to my kids. I mean, why would I say that to my children? Because, I mean, I wasn't that way when I was a teenager. Yeah, that's the reason I'm here. I wasn't like that when I was a teenager. I was more corrupt than my kids was, but that's the reason I'm here now. Okay, or I'm, I mean, I feel so much guilt over the past. I don't want to challenge my wife on this, or I don't want to lead her in this way, or I don't want, to, I don't want us to move in this direction because I'm just frozen because of my guilt. Here's the thing. I've already told you, I'm the worst sinner in the room. I need the grace of Jesus. I mean, as bad as you think I am, I'm actually worse. One time I was falsely accused of just being some issues, and these guys were like, yeah, you're so bitter, and this, and said this, and you told this person that. And, and I was like, I didn't say that. And there was a couple people that were frustrated with me because they were like, you said this. I'm like, I did not say that. And so I was so bitter about that for being falsely accused. And one day I was jogging around the lake, and um, God said to me, Here, here's the thing, Matt. You're right. You didn't say that. They've accused you of that. But think of all the things that you have done that no one knows about, that you've gotten off the hook for. As bad as they say you are, you're worse. I was like, oh, all right then. He goes, you've got to move on, right? And so we've got to walk in that forgiveness and that redemption ourselves. Verse 4, number 4. You need to model the power of redemption by forgiving your wife. There's a lot of guys in, in, in this room who will hear this teaching who are embittered towards their wife. Colossians says, do not be embittered towards your wife. You've got to forgive her, which means you've got to release her. No justice for you. God's in charge of justice. She's a sinner. She does need to be corrected. Uh, you need to be a part of that. She is not better than you are. You are not better than she is. All right, And so you're the biggest sinner in the room. You need to be able to release her from the consequences that you're dreaming about bringing on her. Fifth one, you must call her to forgive you. A lot of us have wives who are holding things against us. 
And maybe you need to go with some of this teaching, some of these passages, and talk about what God's doing in your heart, and you need to call her to forgive you. And y'all talk about what repentance looks like for you and what repentance looks like for her. Um, last one, number six. You need to move towards her to reconcile. If oneness is the goal of marriage, then we cannot stay apart. I cannot let passivity rule today. I have to move towards her. Here's the thing. I have to move towards her when it's my fault. And I have to humble myself and say, look, this was my fault. I did it yesterday. I thought, I might better get this worked out before I go teach on this. Right? And so, um, babe, that was my fault. I wish you know, you'd handled that part better. But it, even if you hadn't done that, I mean, I still handled that wrong. Got to move towards her. Which takes a lot of humility. And... Here's the thing. you got to move towards her when it's her fault. Some of us are fine to move towards her when it's my fault, when it's your fault. But you got to move towards her when it's her fault. you got to open her eyes to it, give her some space. But you also got to move towards her. A guy that mentored me talked about being on a trip with his wife and kids. and um, There was some conflict between he and Lisa. And he said, I'm holding the steering wheel driving. He goes, and I know that I need to move towards her. He goes, but there is nothing in me. This is one of the godliest men I know. He goes, there is nothing in me that wants to move towards her. And I have to say, God, I am dead. I'm going to live by trusting in you. And as much humility as this takes, it is killing me. But I, there's nothing in me that wants to move towards her. But I'm going to do it anyway. Whether it's her fault, my fault. Here, here's what's hard to get our minds around. Is that we wish we lived in the world where there was no brokenness. We had that world. We messed it up. We're going to have that world again and it won't be corruptible. But here's the reality. We live in a world where it's corrupted and there's brokenness. That's just the reality of it. But here's the thought. Is that that brokenness in me and her and in our home is actually an opportunity to build oneness. It's actually an opportunity for redemption. So Haiti gets destroyed. We wish that didn't happen. It's a terrible thing that it happened that we live in a fallen world. But here's what we have now. Now we have the opportunity to rebuild and for redemption and to do ministry and to impact people in a way that we would not have had before. This corruption, the fall, the sin, the struggle, the brokenness, the pain is actually an opportunity to bring about redemption in our homes. All right, And we have to see it that way from the very beginning. Let's pray.